Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. enough to be able to interview Paul Holes, who is very familiar with San Joaquin County and surrounding areas of California. Paul was the detective who finally identified the Golden State Killer, and it was a privilege to speak to him. Hey Shane, Wendy, this is Paul Holes, retired cold case investigator out of Contra Costa County DA's office. You know, I did 27 and a half years, 24 with Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office, mostly in forensic science. And then I moved over to the DA's office where I did cold case investigation. And uh, most certainly the my most well-known case is the Golden State Killer. And I was involved in utilizing the genealogy tool to identify Joseph D'Angelo as the Golden State Killer. Where I was working, Contra Costa County, is just east of San Joaquin County. And it's connected to San Joaquin County through, a, really, it's, it's a highway, but it's a two-lane road, a levee road called Highway 4, which is surprising because Stockton is such a, a major city in California, major industrial city, and the most direct route to the Bay Area is this little two-lane levee road and for whatever reason they've never corrected that you have to go down south to alameda county and then cross over on 580 and then go up 5 or 99 or then or go up uh, 80 even up as far north as sacramento and come down but i had no experience with stockton until at a certain point in my investigation with the golden state killer case i decided that the attacks that he committed in Stockton in September of 77 and March of 78 could potentially be key to identifying who he was. And that's when I ended up on that little two-lane levee road for the first time to go see Stockton. And I got to know Stockton uh, quite well from a, a certain perspective as I was investigating the case. And I ended up leaving my investigation out of Stockton uh, because pretty much every stone I turned over there just led me down a rabbit hole. There was so much stuff going on in that jurisdiction from the political side of the 1970s and the 1980s to the developers that I was looking into 
that it was diluting my efforts. And that's when I ended up uh, focusing in on Davis, California, which was a little bit smaller and a little bit easier to focus in on. So what was your first impressions when you got to Stockton? You know, I moved out to California in the eighth grade and attended high school and college and did my whole career in California. And Stockton was always, the word of mouth was like, it's the armpit of California and high crime, a lot of gang activity, a lot of drug activity. And so when I first ventured into Stockton, I, I really had a negative connotation about it. And, and that, that was just based on what I had heard. Now, Stockton is a rough town. Uh, and especially when you go back into the 1970s and the 1980s, there was a lot of stuff that was going on. However, one of the things that I was shocked by was uh, how nice a lot of the areas north of downtown are in terms of uh, living, the residential areas, uh, the shopping that is there. And this ultimately, I learned, can probably be attributed in major part that a lot of major residential developers headquartered themselves in Stockton back in the 60s and the 70s. And a lot of them were very progressive. And so that's where you start seeing some developments that rose out of uh, most notably in the late 60s with Lincoln Village West, which was a lake-centric master plan community. And when you go there today, it's an absolutely gorgeous place to live, uh, as well as other developments. And it was very different than what I was expecting based on what I had always heard about Stockton it was almost like you drive downtown and you're going to have to duck to uh, avoid the bullets that are constantly flying around. But that's not what I saw. Obviously, there's rough areas, but I saw a downtown that had a lot of history, a downtown that, you know, even though it's in the middle of the state, it has a major port. It has, it has waterway access to the Sacramento River all the way up to Sacramento and then all the way out the bay head out the golden gate so it is a very interesting city to be sure but very different than what i initially thought stockton is a it's a major city so any major city of course has high crime areas but the nice areas are really nice and then that's where when i got to know i i got to know some of the locals out there and you know in talking to them they're very proud of their heritage and i was dealing with a lot of people that were in the development industry and they keep touting that at one point, there is eight of the largest developers in the nation, in the top 20 in the nation, were headquartered in Stockton. And you go, why? But it just turns out that's the way it worked out. There was a lot of uh, development going on in the 70s and 80s, and these uh, developers flocked to this location. And it, it, it was a marriage between some of the progressive stuff that was going on in development in Southern California and taking advantage of the cheap land that was there in the Central Valley. You had mentioned how there were two cases specifically that you traveled to Stockton for. What all do you remember about those cases? Oh, I can go into great detail about each case because these are two of the cases that were attributed to the Golden State Killer. But at the time that he committed these attacks, he was known as the East Area Rapist. And so he had started out up in Sacramento in June of 76. And then ultimately, because of the number of attacks that were occurring in the East Area of Sacramento, the whole suburbs that are east of downtown Sacramento, 
he got that moniker, East Area Rapist, that he had a very distinctive MO in terms of how he was committing his sexual assaults. And at, at a certain point, he ends up attacking couples, a husband and wife asleep in their own bed. And then a masked man comes in with a gun and through clenched teeth, he is now threatening them to blow their brains off if they don't do what they say. And then he has both of them bound and then ultimately he places dishes on the man's back as an alarm system and then moves the wife out to the family room, typically that where the TV is, because he liked to turn the TV on to have that soft glow. He'd put a towel over the TV or a blanket so he could see what he was doing. And then he'd sexually assault the woman. And he did that kind of attack over and over again and very distinctive. So Sacramento authorities were following. They knew which attacks were being committed by this guy. And then in, in uh, September of 1977, after 22 attacks up in Sacramento, he pops up in Stockton. And because he attacks a couple and he does the exact same thing like he was doing in Sacramento Authority, goes, that's East Area Rapist. He's now down in Stockton. And the interesting thing about that attack, especially from my perspective, is he attacked in Lincoln Village West, which is that master-planned, lake-centric community that Fritz Gruppi was well into building at the time. But if you look at the map today, you see that Highway 5 goes from Sacramento right by Lincoln Village West. But at the time of this attack, Highway 5 didn't exist. It was in the process of being built. This means that my offender had to come down 99, and then he had to drive all the way across town west to Lincoln Village West. And so that was one of my focus is why is he purposely going so far off the freeway, off of 99 to attack in Lincoln Village West? After he does that attack, he goes back up to Sacramento for six more cases. And then in March of 78, he's back down in Stockton. And he ends up attacking a couple there. And it just turns out that the victim in that attack worked for Barnett Range Developers. And I was really focusing in on the, the offender being in the, somehow affiliated with the development industry. So that's how I got pulled to Stockton as I decided that attack, somehow, some way, he had prior interaction with that female victim. And because I thought he was in the development industry, somehow they interacted. And so it was really reaching out to her and then me going out and starting to really key in on getting to know Stockton and all the developments out there. Because even though we only have two Stockton cases attributed to the East Area Rapist, there is all sorts of East Area Rapist incidents that just didn't result in attacks. He's being chased by Stockton PD. He's being chased by San Joaquin sheriffs. And so I was crisscrossing Stockton and the outskirts of it, just trying to figure out why is he down here? What's pulling him down here? And spending a lot of time going through uh, city and county records to see if I could come up with names that could potentially be suspects. What year was that when you went to Stockton? I think that would have been circa 2013. Did you have any run-in with the sheriff's department? I ended up spending a fair amount of time with the sheriff's office. I had a what I considered to be a very strong suspect for the Golden State Killer case who had a prior homicide case that he had actually been arrested and taken to trial 
twice. It just hung juries on the two attempts that they tried to prosecute him. And so part of my investigation was inside working with uh, former sheriff's uh, investigators, as well as being at the sheriff's property room, going through evidence in those cases to see if I could find any link to the Golden State Killer. Do you remember who was sheriff at that time? I believe it was Sheriff Baxter. Now, I didn't interact directly with Sheriff Baxter, but I, I could be wrong about that because Baxter... I think he left office under some hardships, if you will. There may have been another sheriff in place at the time. My primary interactions were uh, with a couple of retired investigators from uh, the 1980s. And I had previous interaction with San Joaquin Sheriff's Office on other cases besides Golden State Killer. We, uh, San Joaquin County and, and Contra Costa County share a border. And me working cold cases, I'm digging into cases that originated possibly out of San Joaquin County, body dumps, when they happen to cross over into our jurisdiction or be close to our jurisdiction or vice versa. So I, over the years, had had some interaction with San Joaquin sheriffs. Uh, what role have you heard about the Speed Free Killers? Obviously, I'm familiar with Herzog, Shermantine and Herzog. And they, in, in many ways, there's an unusual serial predator duo from my perspective. You have these two men. They obviously found that they have a, a common interest. A, a lot of the serial predators that I personally go after are your fantasy motivated, sexually driven type of uh, predator. Uh, versus the, the speed free killers, though I do believe each of them had their own fantasy aspects and some of their, their homicides are probably fantasy oriented. There's also a thrill killing aspect to what they were doing. And they had both male and female victims trying to assess whether or not I, I would be looking at my unsolved cases. Could the speed free killers be involved in my cases out of Cocoa County? They could easily have traveled out to Cocoa and, and committed some of their crimes. But because of the, the, they weren't very focused in terms of the types of homicides that they were committing, it really opens up the possibilities. I could be looking at, let's say, a male found shot, shotgun blast in his car, and maybe originally law enforcement thought that he was a victim of a drug dealing gone bad, but he easily could have been a victim of the Speed Free Killers because they would commit that kind of crime. So they're complicated from that perspective, but also in, in some ways, they're maybe a little bit more behaviorally simple than some of the real organized fantasy motivated sexual predators. A detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. For the Herzog and Shermantine, how common is it, in your opinion, for serial killers to be working in pairs? It happens. I don't think it is the norm, but you do see it happen from time to time. I'm thinking of uh, Bitteker, Lawrence Bitteker, and his partner's name is is escaping me, but it was a duo out of Los Angeles. They were sexual sadists, you know, horrific crimes that they were committing. Hillside Stranglers, they initially thought it was just one guy, but it turned out to be two individuals that were abducting and, and killing those women. So it is something that happens. These guys somehow find each other, whether it be through shared time in prison, or through some sort of common interaction just out in, in society, and they find out that they have similar interests, and then they start committing the crimes. Now, in my experience, in taking a look at some of my cases, anytime I have a series, and I'm seeing differences from one victim to another, I start wondering, do I have multiple offenders acting in concert? And it just so happens that one offender's personality and behavioral aspects dominated this one case, causing it to have certain features. And then another case that I think is related, but has different aspects to it, is that maybe the second person of that duo's personality being expressed. So it's just something to pay attention to that it it is a phenomenon that occurs, but I can't say that it's very common. Usually these these guys like to operate by themselves. And in part, it's they don't want to get caught. They don't want to tell anybody about it. And oftentimes they're very secretive about their inner thoughts and they don't want to share that with anybody. For the killers that normally work together, what kind of uh, characteristics do you normally see for the reasoning behind that? In terms of going back with all the studies I've done on this, it it appears that uh, this partnership is primarily being driven by that shared experience. And often there's going to be one of the individuals more dominant, the alpha male, and then the other one is a follower. And the follower may or may not necessarily be as inclined to commit the types of crimes that the alpha is committing. But of course, he's going to go along in order to please, you know, this this person that he may look up to or be scared of. Do you have any advice on how we could see who might be the alpha in this situation? With a case that is where the offenders are identified, oftentimes you'll get that through the interviews based on the personalities that are being expressed. If the two individuals were placed, let's say, in the back of a patrol car after they were arrested, who is dominating that conversation? Who is giving orders on how don't talk or this is going to be the story? Those are the types of things where it becomes very apparent who the alpha is. Typically with duos, you know, and and I've got a case, uh, actually it's going to come out on on Audible probably in the fall, but it's a a husband and wife team. 
and it's obvious that the husband is dominant. And that's typically the case when you have a male and female offenders that are committing serial crimes, predatory type crimes. And it, in that particular case, it becomes very obvious. The male is driving not only the attacks and what the wife was to do during the commission of the attacks and the cleanup of the attacks, but also after arrest, he's dominating. This is our plan moving forward. So in terms of assessing a duo, Herzog and Sherman team, I would be wanting to hear the interviews of each of those guys, as well as watch any interactions that those two had together to see who does appear to be the leader of the duo. That's super helpful. Thank you. Another thing that we uncovered while we were there is that while looking into the specific victims that we know for a fact were a part of Sherman Titan and Herzog's spree, We also were looking at others who, as you mentioned earlier, you said how it's really hard to pinpoint what cases could be related to them because they're not all of them were tortured, not all of them were female, not all of them were blonde. So that's one thing that we're really struggling with. And something that shocked me being there is how many times I would come across a possible victim and then learn oh, there were several other serial killers who were active at that point in time in Sacramento or San Joaquin County. What all serial killers are you aware of that are from that area? So obviously in the Bay Area, going out to Central Valley up to Sacramento, there was just, it almost appears that it was just a constant learning process that there's so many of these individuals in California during this time frame. And I'd, I'd say starting in the late 1960s and expanding out down to Santa Cruz, up to Sonoma, and then out east, Bay Area, East Bay, Central Valley. It's shocking to learn the number of serial predators that were operating in any of these jurisdictions in this part of California during this time frame. And I've run into that. In fact, that duo, that husband-wife duo that I was just talking about, I was in the process of trying to find a death penalty eligible case. He was convicted of three, and I know he's done more. And I was looking for a case to to hang over his head with, with the death penalty, digging into other cases that I thought were attributed, and the original investigators were were done by him, uncovered two other serial killers through DNA. And, and it's just like, huh, you start recognizing that everybody talks about law enforcement having linkage blindness, where, oh, we don't have a serial you know, killer at you know, work here in, in our jurisdiction. And it turns out, well, yeah, you do. But there's also a phenomenon of overlinkage to where it's like, oh, I've got multiple cases. It's got to be the same guy. And it turns out, no, you do have multiple predators operating in the same area at the same time. And so when you get to the speed freak killers and you start looking at, well, which cases can I attribute to them? Turns out well, there's, you had Roger Kibbe. He was known as the I-5 killer. He's going up and down I-5, killing women, also picking up prostitutes and, and, and killing them. There's numerous serial killers that were up in Sacramento at the time. Richard Trenton Chase in in 1977, I believe, was active, in addition to serial rapists going on. In my jurisdiction, in the 1970s, I've got uh, Phil Hughes, I've got Daryl Kemp, I've got Charles Jackson. 
Going into the 1980s, there's a John Sapp who's more along the speed freak killers. I can just start naming them over and over. And, and they don't just stay. My serial killers in Contra Costa County weren't just committing crimes in Contra Costa County. They're moving across borders. They most certainly could have crimes out in San Joaquin County that people are thinking maybe these are speed free killers or killers, predators out of Sacramento are coming down into Stockton, as we saw with the Golden State Killer. So it becomes very complex. And that's where in this day and age with modern technology, the idea of linking cases with DNA or latents, those are the two ways to really identify your offender. That's what ends up sorting these cases out. You can look at them behaviorally and think you, it's the same offender, but there's such a subjective aspect that sometimes you may attribute a case because of the behavioral characteristics to one offender and in reality, it was done by another offender who was committing a similar type of crime. I think when I looked in a 20-year period, I got to 23 serial killers yeah. just around that area. Yeah. And they, yeah. All, they don't all overlap, of course, but there are so many overlaps. And those are the ones that are identified. Yeah, have, exactly. In Contra Costa County, I have so many unsolved cases from that time frame. Some of them may be from some of these individuals that are identified, but I can guarantee that there are other serial killers yeah. active in Contra Costa County, in San Joaquin County, up in Sacramento County, that we don't know yet. We don't know their names yet. Why do you think that area particularly has so many? Was it a construction industry or drugs? I really don't have a good understanding because... There, of course, there's a theory when you start looking at serial killers popping up in the 1970s, it was soldiers who were traumatized in, in Vietnam, and then they're coming back and because of the psychological damage, committing these atrocious crimes. And the reality is that many of the serial killers that have been identified had no experience in Vietnam. So you can't attribute their criminality to any type of war trauma. I think part of the Bay Area, of course, it's a massive population, even in the 1970s, relative to Indiana, where Shane's at. And so anytime you have a major population base, there's a greater chance that somebody within that population is going to be a predator. I also think that the Bay Area, in many ways, it, it was such, and to this day, is still a, just a melting pot of everybody from all walks of life, from countries across the world. And with that environment, you, you're going to have a percentage of the population that have this proclivity to commit these types of crimes. And it, in the Bay Area, 1960s, 1970s, absolutely, versus a more rural area where you don't have the population base and you don't have the melting pot aspect. But I don't think there's an answer. It just so happened that we had a higher than average number of predators from the late 60s into the 80s in this area in California. And that's that was the era of the cold cases that I chose to work. And so I got a lot of exposure to these types of cases during the course of my career. So Herzog and Shermantine actually met as children. And there is a rumor, though we haven't had that substantiated, but that Shermantine's father used to get rid of people who used to work for him on the land rather than pay them. And that maybe that's where he learned that people weren't really valuable. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And this is the whole uh, nature versus nurture debate about what 
causes a, a serial predator, whether it be a rapist or a killer. And most certainly a child being exposed. If he was exposed to his father committing homicides to just basically get rid of people. That, that sounds like Juan Corona, which is also another Northern California case. Juan Corona is killing workers that were on the farm. I know from my perspective, I think it's a combination of both. I do think that these individuals typically have some sort of genetic predisposition, if you will. And if the environmental exposure, their upbringing, whether it be family or something else, is a sufficient stimuli, then it's something that can cause this switch to be flipped. The fantasy starts kicking in when they start sexualizing violence or the demeaning and degradation of the value of human life, like in the, the circumstances you're bringing up with Sherman Tynstadt. And that absolutely could be a factor in terms of the creation of somebody who is willing to cross that moral, ethical, societal barrier of taking somebody else's life. And in your experience, how common is it that serial killers kill people that they know? Because Sherman Tyne and Herzog knew a number of their victims very well. Yeah, it's mixed. And I would say it's that's where you're starting to take a look at the intelligence and the sophistication of the offender. The, the FBI, early days of the FBI profiling, of course, they broke down offenders into organized and disorganized categories. And that had to do with how much planning, forethought, etc., was going into the commission of the crime and how much they were covering up after they committed the crime. When you have offenders killing individuals that they know, that in many ways show that they are either willing to take a higher risk because that's how investigations into those types of cases get solved as you start with the victim and you start working out based on relationships and so in many ways it's either they have a higher tolerance for risk or they have a more impulsive nature and they're now not considering the consequences of killing somebody they know, your most sophisticated offenders do avoid committing attacks on people they know. And that's what becomes the hardest type of case to solve is because even if you, when you identify the victim, you can't work from the victim outwards to find a social circle, relationship, family, friends, etc., that will identify your offender. You are now having to rely on forensics. You're having to rely on in this day and age, a technology in order to compile a list of names that could be the offender. So if Shermantine and Herzog are killing people they know and considering that they had that thrill killing aspect to them, I would say that there may have been an impulsive aspect behind some of those killings. So also our serial killers, we know that they killed in 1985 and we know that they killed in 1998. But there's nothing in between those that were confirmed. How unusual is it for there to be such a big gap? There's a 14 year gap. I've seen serial predators commit cases with what I'll call clusters. So where you have a series, you have four cases and then nothing for a few years. And then you have a few more cases. So they do that. Life stresses build up. They have something going on 
And now they have that compulsion to go out and commit those cases. And then maybe that life stressor goes away and they no longer are going out and killing until something else pops up. With Herzog and Germantine, because of the thrill aspect, I don't see them going dormant for 14 years. So I do believe you probably do have cases that they committed during that gap. I just don't know at what frequency, but most certainly the timeline, it sounds like you have timelined them out. That's huge. When are each of them in custody? What's going on in each of their lives? Are they getting married? Are they having kids? Are they, do they have a, a 40 hour a week job? Things that could be factors to start assessing if one of them gets laid off from work. That would be a stressor as well as an amount of freedom that could potentially cause, you know what, I'm going to start up again. And I would start focusing on cases that would occur after that kind of event, if you have that in your timeline, or similar types of events. We do have Shermantine, I think there's at least eight, but I can't remember his eight or 12 now, women who reported him for assault that was part of that acquittal trial. And they had at least, at least eight women came forward then and said he'd attacked them or assaulted them over this timeline. So there were still things happening, but we haven't got any murders in that time that we're aware of. Sure. We have lots of potential victims. Like we have a huge list of potential victims that may be attributed to them, but we don't know for sure. In the known cases, are they consistently sexually assaulting the women? Not always. How about men? Any sexual assault in men? Not that we know of. Okay. With yeah. the women, there's normally torture involved. Mm-hmm. In the stories that we know where they've gone into detail about what has happened to their victims, like some of the women in the we know that torture was involved, uh, okay. that we also have rumors of people who have seen this really strange room that they had. They called it the barber room with the barber chair. And we've heard rumors and stories about people seeing them torture uh, women victims. But in most cases that we're aware of when it comes to men, normally there's not a whole lot of torture there. The torture was with the women. Yeah. So this, when you start seeing this kind of torture room or sex slave situation, now we're crossing over into the sexual sadist. And this is like your uh, Leonard Lake, Charles Ng individual. Here's another duo that was abducting people and then keeping them alive and torturing them, sexually, sexually assaulting them, etc. That becomes very interesting to me because that is a level of depravity behaviorally that these offenders are committing. There is fantasy there. They're getting off on inflicting pain and watching the victims respond to that pain. They like that. And so when you have a room that is some place where they can hide the victim and do whatever they want to the victim, that gives a not only control over the victim during that period of time, but also gives them the capacity to dispose of that victim without leaving evidence of that victim. And that's what we were seeing with Leonard Lake and Charles Ng, where they basically were almost cremating these victims and depositing the ashes and the bones on the property out in the foothills. So that opens up to where you're not necessarily just going to be looking at known cases where bodies are found, homicide cases. You may have to dig into missing persons cases during this time frame. And it's a matter of now doing a victim profile 
who is likely to have crossed paths with Sherbatine and Herzog and disappeared because they took that woman back to a torture room, did what they did to her, and then have completely disposed of her body and has never been found. So on the maps that Shermantine has drawn, he has marked lots of other wells that he says there are bodies in that have never been excavated. And we know Shermantine has some credibility because he was the one that disclosed the well and which bodies were found in. So, and he also well, disclosed the burial sites of Chevy and Cindy. So most certainly any location where Shermantine is, is saying we've put bodies there ha- has to be exhaustively evaluated and quite frankly i will tell you having done this myself is the only real way to determine if a body is down in that well or buried under the ground is you gotta dig you just have to start digging so if he's marked things on the map then i would say that law enforcement at this point has a obligation to get out there and really evaluate and exhaustively look into wherever this location is to see are there remains there. I know they have a cold case team that they've just set up in San Joaquin and so they're starting to look at this but of course it will take them some time to get far enough down the line probably to look at it. Yeah, for all the political troubles with San Joaquin Sheriff and Stockton PD and Stockton politics over the years I know for some of the investigators that have worked in both of those uh, jurisdictions, the city as well as the county. They're excellent, very experienced, excellent investigators that probably to this day would be willing to help out. One of the instances that we found, we're looking at trying to figure out why or how these killers got away for so long with all these people going missing and it just going under the radar. But we've uncovered at least one case where the sheriff was removing missing people from their databases. Do you know of a reason why a sheriff would do that? Only if the the missing person had been found or was considered a false report. I've seen where statistics are huge for the sheriff and the police chief. And if they're under their watch, a bad trend starts to emerge, that can hurt their livelihood moving forward, whether it, you know, seeking re-election or maintaining a position if you're appointed. You hate to see somebody in law enforcement changing the facts in order to make something look better than what it is. But unfortunately, I've seen that happen. It is a real possibility, and I just know the history out there in San Joaquin and Stockton, and I would be a little bit concerned about the motive behind why they would be removing missing persons out of a database if, in fact, those missing persons were never found or there was no concern about a false report. Do you think it looks bad for an area, for let's say a sheriff's department or their county, if they have an active serial killer? Yeah, and that's, uh, in, in many ways, Departments have a tendency to try to downplay the thought of an active serial killer in their jurisdiction because it can panic the public, pressures can build up on law enforcement and the decision makers there, but also city officials don't want that. It could impact if it's a city that has, let's say, 
a lot of tourism. And people are going, well, I ain't going there. There's somebody out there killing people. So there's many motivations to try to downplay. But a factor that, that I, in my experience is often the case is most law enforcement really does not understand what a serial predator is. They don't know how to recognize it. Law enforcement generally is very good at dealing with gang-related crime, drug-related crime, domestic violence. That's what they do day in and day out. But they get something unusual. Let's say a woman's body is found posed and some odd thing done to her body. A lot of investigators have never seen that before. And they, okay, she was a sex worker and she owed somebody some money, so that's why she was killed. Versus you get somebody like either myself or somebody like that works in the FBI's behavioral analysis unit who sees this on a common and go, no, this is fantasy that is being expressed. There's behavior here. This is not a dope rip gone bad. This is not vengeance. This is somebody who is getting a level of sexual pleasure out of committing this type of violence on this victim. And that's where I ended up towards the end of my career. I was teaching a class called the Introduction and Recognition of the Serial Predator because I was seeing this over and over again to where investigators and patrol just would come across a case and they weren't knowing what was going on. And they ended up investigating it in a traditional manner like like it was. It's because the victim owed somebody some money versus, oh, no, you've got a predator at work here. So that can factor in to law enforcement coming out and saying, we don't have a serial killer because they don't know. That's not what they deal with. And generally, the smaller the agency, the more likely that they've never run into something like that. When you get into your big population bases, the Bay Area, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, you have investigators that are seeing this so they understand it. But your smaller agencies, they don't see it. The last question I have for you, Paul, is have you ever heard of instances where serial killers from prison will contact a victim's family members? Now, at least with the cases that I've worked, I can't think of that occurring. I know cases in which serial killers and victim families have interacted after the killer's been identified. And it's oftentimes it's the family member going to talk to the, the killer in prison. But I can't think of a case after being in custody in which the the killer has reached out to the victim's families, in my personal experience. Three of the girls that um, we know are associated with Shermantine and Herzog actually went missing within three months of each other from the same estate in Stockton. Same house. They were friends. Oh, really? And they still weren't linked. They were still said they were all just runaway girls or one of them was classed as a prostitute yeah. and just said she was in with the wrong people. But they all knew each other. And it was all within... Two of them actually went missing within a day of each other. That's yeah, kind of a... Cool. And the other one was like three months later and that they weren't linked. What year did this occur in? 85. Okay. I think law enforcement overall has gotten better at being more open to the idea that these are victims versus voluntary runaways. 
especially when you get into the early 70s, I saw this all the time, is that the default state that law enforcement took was these girls just ran away. And no, they didn't. And I saw that over and over again. When you start getting into the 80s, that was still the mentality. And especially if the girl or woman was involved in sex work, then law enforcement would dismiss that case very rapidly. And it's just, it kills me when I would read those cases. Because in essence, they treated those women as if they were a lesser person than some other person that had been a victim of a crime. I do think, and it's just a generalized statement, I think today, if uh, you had the same situation with three girls going missing, they all knew each other, they all lived together at certain points in time, that would be something that law enforcement would say, okay, we've got a problem here. We need to dig into this a little bit, figure out what's going on. Yeah. We know lots of people that are armchair detectives who like to investigate cold cases. Do you have any tips for them or things they should avoid? Sure. I've got a very long history with sort of the armchair detectives, the online sleuths. My history actually goes back to late 90s, early 2000s when I was digging into the Zodiac case. And that was a huge case, even in the early days of the internet for the online sleuths. And I was having them hit me up all the time with their own persons of interest. And then of course, with the Golden State Killer, that became a huge thing. And, and I was receiving upwards to 30 emails and voicemails from all these various people across the world that were investigating the case and trying to give me tips or directing me as to what investigation I should do for them. I think from a tip standpoint and how they can benefit is they benefit the investigation. Some of these people are very bright. They have uh, uh, skill sets that often aren't found in law enforcement. So if they can utilize, you know, their passion, their skill sets, and put together a summary of what, whatever they're thinking, whether it's a person that they think might be involved or a theory that they have about the case, and then send that into an investigator, that is helpful when that kind of model is done. Uh, unfortunately, some of them get into these, you know, online disputes with other online sleuths and pretty soon if they've developed a person that they're looking at they name that person to the public in the online form and that person ends up becoming coming under scrutiny from all these online people don't do that just feed these names to law enforcement do not name those people in public and do not expect to receive word back from law enforcement about the state of the investigation into whatever tip that they've provided. I know for me, there's just no way I could constantly be updating somebody of what I was doing. And in some instances, we have to, law enforcement has to stay quiet about what they're doing. I know for me, with Golden State Killer at a certain point, because it became so out there in the public domain and there's so many online sleuths, I was not telling anybody what my investigation was. Because if I said, hey, I'm focusing in on this neighborhood in Davis, California, next thing I know, I've got 10 online sleuths contacting everybody who lives in that neighborhood. And they've just contaminated my witness pool. So you just have to understand that it's not necessarily negligence or or indifference from the investigator if they're not getting back to you or not updating. You've done a public service by digging into the case and providing the information. And uh, you're just gonna have to accept it at that point. 
if you want to hear more from Paul Holes, he has a podcast with journalist Billy Jensen called The Murder Squad. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.